Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the cross of Jesus, for the understanding that we have as we stand here this morning of what that has done for us, what it has purchased for us, it's given us real life, our sins cleansed, our guilt taken care of, atoned for, wrath of God turned aside upon him so that we can know you. Father, this morning, enable us to grow in understanding of this gospel. Help us to understand all that you have done for us. Father, we confess there's many things that distract us from what really matters. Many good things that's a part of our lives. And so this morning, we need for you to lift our eyes off of the dailies of our lives. To be able to see you. To be able to respond to what's eternal. To be respond to you. So that this week as we live, we are not living just with a mindset it is purely of the temporal, but it's a mindset that sees the eternal. And because of that, we can live truly and wholly as yours. Use your word this morning. Go deep into our lives. That your spirit would transform our hearts and our minds. Help us understand and apply all that you want us to. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As you do, you can open your Bibles to John chapter 4. We're going to continue from where we left off last week. Um, and just kind of a, a, a note, I know that many of you, I know I certainly have missed uh, Bill being in the pulpit, and, and we certainly eager await, uh, eagerly await his return here. But you just got to know this, that, uh, that as much as you might miss him, we the staff miss him e- even more each day and each, each week. It's just not the same without him. For one, when Bill's gone, so is the chocolate. And so, uh, so we're, we're eager for him to return with the chocolate. It's all down at the hospital now. And if you've seen his stash, you'll know that. Uh, but more than that, we just miss his presence. And, and, and certainly as you feel it on a Sunday morning, we feel it each and every day of the week and, and uh, look forward to having him back um, ministering together with him. But we're grateful that we can continue to work with him in his stead. So I'm going to read for us through John chapter 4. I'm going to start in verse 4. We have a lengthy passage this morning. I'm going to read through verse 42. And we're going to pick up the story of the woman at the well. And we're going to continue on in what happens as a result of Jesus' interaction with her. Verse 4 of chapter 4. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, that you, a Jew ask for a drink from me, a, Samar- a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God... And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst, be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. 
Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have, you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where, Jesus ought, where, where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are four months more, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for, which, for that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to, stay with, asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. First half of this text, as we looked at it last week, we saw that Jesus had this interaction with this woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, this outcast, this immoral woman, and he offered to her water that would truly satisfy. We saw her thirst, we saw her need, we saw the guilt that she, she had, we saw her brokenness of sin, and we saw this unquenchable thirst that, that Jesus understood. And so he offers to her water, living water that would completely and purely satisfy Water that would cleanse her of her sin. Water that would bring a kind of healing for her brokenness. And so the message last week was for those who were thirsty. Jesus said, come, I will give you that which will quench your thirst. He offered her living water. And now as we move on in this text, we see that the offer, that the, the text changed. The storyline kind of expands a little bit. We're going to find a couple things change. If the, if the leading or the main metaphor of water in the first, was water in the first half, that the second half, the metaphor shifts to a harvest, a picture of a spiritual harvest that Jesus shows to his disciples and he shows to us. 
as well, we find that there's some new people that are introduced. Not just one person, but a whole town now is coming out to Jesus. The whole town of Samaritans from Sychar as the, Jesus goes, as the woman goes to get them and to bring them back. And then finally we see, now not just the woman was confused, that the disciples as well are confused. And there's a whole section right in the middle of this narrative where Jesus takes the opportunity Indeed, has made the opportunity for them, for, he, for him to teach his disciples, for them to understand, indeed, what this harvest is really all about. And if the first part of the text was an offer of living water, the, this next part, the second half of the text for us, is really a challenge. It's a challenge for us who have experienced the living water, who know what it means to truly be alive, to truly know Jesus Christ, to have tasted of that living water, the challenge is now that we would not keep it to ourselves. The challenge is for us to understand that this water is to be passed on. And that there is something that God is doing in and through our lives through the water that he has provided for us. And the challenge for us is not to miss what God is doing. Not to keep it for ourselves. But to be a part of his work and to take great joy and delight in the, in the harvest that he is affecting. That we see in this passage and that we understand is still taking place. As we look at this section between 27 and 42, there's really a couple questions we're going to look at that I want to focus in on. One, I want to talk about the mission of Jesus. We're going to see that the mission of Jesus divides here, and there's two aspects to his mission. There's a mission to those who are from Samaria, to those who don't know him, and there's a mission as well. His mission is seen and manifested as well to his own followers, that they would understand who he is and what he is about. And the second question I want to ask has to do with our response to the harvest. What it is that we are to do. What is it, how are we to respond? The first question has to do with his mission. What Jesus is really all about here. And in order to understand the mission that Jesus has. The mission that he is on. I want to look back at the very opening line that I read this morning. I touched on it last week. But in verse 4 of chapter 4. This language, it's so in interesting in Scripture, and you can read through the Gospel, and you find this language at different times where we see that Jesus had to do something. Earlier, it talks about Jesus, have, that the Son of Man must be lifted up, as a servant was lifted up in the desert, that, that the Son of Man must be lifted up. And you find it throughout the Scriptures, throughout the Gospels, especially where the Son of Man must do something. And here, in verse 4, we see that Jesus had to go through Samaria. It's an interesting question, right? When you ask the question, how is it the Son of God, God in flesh, has to do anything? Does he really have to do anything? He didn't need a boat to cross the Sea of Galilee. He didn't need months or years to turn water into wine. The lame that he healed did not need months of rehab for them to be able to walk again. So how is it that the Son of Man, that, that the Son of God has to do anything? And of course we understand that that language is always attached to his mission. That when we find that Jesus has to do anything, it is because it's part and parcel of who he is and what he has been called to do. So we ask the question about his mission and we see his mission was to go through Samaria. Another text that's interesting, if you'll turn to, to Luke chapter 19, where we see the same language. It's a language of divine necessity. When God has to do something, it's always connected and bound up and tied with his mission. What he is about, what Christ is about. In, in Luke 19, the very first uh, 9, 10 verses there is the account of Jesus' interaction with Zacchaeus. And you remember the story of, of Zacchaeus. He wanted to come and see Jesus and he climbs up in a tree. 
And in verse 5, we have this interesting language where Jesus looks up into the tree. We're told that it's a sycamore tree as, as per the song as well as the scripture. In verse 5, and when Jesus came to the place, to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for I must stay at your house today. I must stay at your house today. And we ask, why is it that Jesus must stay at his house? Did he need a place to stay? Did he have no other place that he could go? And the answer is no. The answer is when Jesus must do something, it is connected with his mission. And if you look to the very last verse of this section in verse 10, we will see that after the salvation that Zacchaeus ex experiences by meeting Jesus, Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. We have a missional statement there that's tied with why Jesus must go to Zacchaeus' house was because this is what he is about. This is who Jesus was. This was his identity. It was tied to his mission, so he must go there. Why must Jesus come through Samaria? Because it's intricately tied to his mission. The, seek of man must, the, the Son of Man must come and to seek and to save the lost. And it's interesting, in the, the sample of the woman at the well in Zacchaeus, we find that even Jesus, as he must go to these places, to these people, we understand that these types that he went to were those in the margins of society, those who were outcasts, those who were not highly regarded, that Jesus says, I must go there. I must go to the woman at the well. I must go to Zacchaeus' house. And we understand that his mission is tied up, is bound up with what he must do in going to these and taking the gospel. And the beauty and the mystery of what God is doing here, why it is that Jesus has to go through Samaria is because of his plan of what he wants to do both in the lives of the people of Samaria as well as in the life of his own followers. That he wants to reach out to this one immoral outcast. And as he reaches to the one, he reaches to the many. As we look at the storyline in verses 27 through 42, we see that it's missional. That Jesus is heading. He's come to through Samaria for this purpose. And then the, the, the text splits, right? There's two storylines, 27 to 38. And then we have, um, or 31 to 38, there's a section as he teaches uh, his disciples specifically. And then we have the ending there. There's, the storyline divides into two parts. to so the Samaritans, those who would be saved, and then also the teaching to his disciples, to, the, to those who would follow him, who are following him presently. And you see there that the storyline of the, of the woman at the well, she takes off the disciples' return. She takes off, leaves her water there, her water jar. Uh, certainly Jesus is still hungry. He's still thirsty. He hasn't got anything to eat. He hasn't got anything to drink. She leaves. It's kind of an awkward situation. The disciples are there, and here Jesus is talking with this woman. She bugs out, heads back to town. She goes back, and the, the text just says that she told them, the people, everything, basically told them about Jesus Come see a man who told me everything that I did, everything that I've ever done. And then she asked the question, can this be the Christ? We see that the people, in response to this simple little word, follow her from town back to the well. Certainly interested in what Jesus, who this man was that has inter interacted with this woman. So the storyline, but in verse 31 to 38, Jesus takes the opportunity to speak to his own disciples. And we see the confusion on them, right? As they've gone to town, they're hungry, they're bringing back food, and they're saying, hey, let's eat. Jesus is talking with this woman, and Jesus has this language there. He says something about the food, that he's got food that, that they don't know about, and their confusion in verse 33, they, they said to one another, has somebody brought him to eat, something to eat? What, what, what's going on here? 
And so they're thinking about food, and she says, no, 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 that, that's not what I'm talking about. There's something going on here that's beyond just the food that you've brought back. There's something more, and there's something bigger that God is doing here than just getting fed, or just getting water. And so we see this confusion on the disciples' part, and that Jesus is, takes this opportunity to teach them, to instruct them about his purposes, about his mission, about why they had to come through Samaria. And so we see there's two parts to the drama. The drama, the part to the Samaritans and the part as he teaches his own followers. It's there. Let's look first at this, this drama, this part that, that goes specifically to the Samaritans. His intent on reaching them. And the beauty of this passage again is that, that, God, that God goes after the one so that he can go after the many. He goes after this one immoral person. And we see an expansion from one to many. That God is seeking and saving the lost. In verse 29, we see the message that the woman goes back with. It's a very simple message. Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. And we have to ask the question, Jesus didn't tell her everything that she'd ever done. How do we understand this? There's certainly an exaggeration there, a little bit of an overstatement. But the point is, is understood, right? That he didn't tell her everything that she'd ever done, but he told her as much. If he knows this much about her, certainly he could tell her anything that she would want to know or anyone else would want to know. But it's more than just details about her. That her message and understanding of Jesus is more than just that he knows about her, that he knows details, that he knows little factoids about her life, that he could tell her what he ate, that she ate that, that morning or what she was going to eat that evening. That his understanding of her goes far beyond just the details. That his knowledge of her was a full knowledge of who she was. He knew her thirst. He knew her past. He knew her disappointments. And he was able to provide for her. He was able to take based upon what he knew about her to provide and give her exactly what she needs. And so she realized that this man didn't know, just know about her. He knew her. He knew her better than any man had ever known her before. And she had known many men. And this man who knew her intimately. We think about this idea of knowledge and this idea that, that, he, that he knew her were, reminds us of a passage early in chapter 1 of John where Jesus comes and, and, and introduced to Nathaniel, Philip's brother. And Nathaniel, as Jesus interacts with him, he says, here's a, indeed an Israelite in whom there's no guile, there's a, and no deceit. And, and, and Nathaniel goes, how do you know me? And he acknowledges him and recognizes him as the rabbi, as the, as the son of God in the situation. We realize that Jesus knows this woman. And that's the, the crux of her message, that he knows her. And the beauty of the message is that it's, it's nothing short of the fact that he knows us. That he is aware of who we are. He doesn't just know about us, but he knows and understands us. He knows us because he formed us. And all the confusion that we have of ourselves... The frustration that we have with ourselves, the disappointments in our own lives, our own secret sins, our own hopes, our desires of what we want our lives to be, how well or how well we do not know ourselves, we understand that there's this one that does know us. And this is the crux of the woman's message as she returns. Here's this man who knows me. Could he be the Christ? And you see in her voice just a little bit of hesitancy there. She's a little hesitant yet to fully embrace him as the Christ. But of course, she's been disappointed many times before. And so we understand that her message is one of a person that knows her that could be the Christ and the people respond based upon that. We're told that, that as the people return, 
upon this message that many believe, that there are many who follow, that many that, that understand this message based upon hers, but then many more believe because of what Jesus does in their lives, because of what he says. And so we have a visual picture in verses 39 through 42, a visual picture of the harvest that Jesus is talking about to his disciples as they respond. And, and at the very conclusion, we have this great picture, this, this understanding that John takes that they have, that he wants to paint a picture of who Jesus is, where they understand him to be the savior of the world. Not just the king of the Jews, he certainly is that, but now he is the savior of the world. And so we see that one aspect, one critical component of the mission of Jesus, and we saw from the first half to the last, is that Jesus would go to the one and then it would go to the many. That he would seek and to save that which is lost. And that, indeed, that's what we see. But the beauty of this text, and as John paints it out for us, that Jesus' mission is not just one-sided. It's not just to get to those who need the message of Christ, those who are, have not believed. It's at the same time to inform this message to those who have believed. There are those who have and those who will believe. And so he wants his own disciples. He wants them to understand what he's about. And so he has to go through Samaria, certainly for the Samaritan's sake, but as much if not more, he has to go through Samaria for his own disciples' sake, that they would understand the basis and the, the, the crux of his mission and what he is all about. His mission to save, seek and to save the lost, but also the mission is seen in as a teaching to them is in a kind of equipping, a kind of deepening of their understanding of what he is about. So this passage in the middle, this teaching on the harvest is much more just an accidental point in the middle of this narrative. It is critical for us to understand what Jesus is about. He's reaching the lost, but guess who he's using? He's using his own, and so we need to understand how he sees and understands the harvest. And indeed we understand in life it's like that, right? We can't miss the end and the means to the end in some respect. A good coach or a good manager of baseball will do what? He understands that he wants to win the game, but more than just winning the game, he has to develop. He has to have his own players, his own, his own players in mind in their own development for that end. And to miss one for the other is to miss the whole. And so Jesus' end in mind is certainly reaching people with the gospel, but it's more than that. It's in the same time reaching his own that they would understand who he is and what he is about. And we see both in play there. At the same time, a, a parent in raising kids, the, the goal, it's, it's not just one child, it's the whole family. And so we keep both of those things in view. And so Jesus has both the end as well as the means, the, his own followers as well as reaching with the gospel to those who are outside of the faith. And so we see that Jesus' heart is both for the world as well as for his own. And that those, those are not at odds with one another, but they're bound up together in his mission. Unless we try to divide that, unless we try to, to divide that mission into two, we realize, no, that both are one and the same reaching the world as well as reaching to us and helping us understand it. As we look at this, this passage his teaching on the, um, to his own disciples. There's three different things I think we can pull out. I think that's helpful for us. Uh, there's many more things as, as he teaches about the harvest. But the, and, and he talks about the food that, that, that he has in accomplishing the work of his father. The first point I think is important for us is that there's a kind of refreshment. There's a kind of satisfaction 
that is beyond physical appetite. When he says in verse 35, no, in verse 34, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And we see the confusion of his disciples when he says, I have food that you don't know about. And they say, well, did somebody bring him food? What did he get this food? And we realize that he's saying, no, 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 no. I'm not talking about that kind of food. The food that I'm talking about is the kind of food, it's the kind of satisfaction, it's the kind of joy, it's the kind of refreshment that comes from being involved in the work of the Father. It, it, it comes from being a part and participating in what the Father is doing. And so as my satisfaction, my joy, my refreshment comes from accomplishing the work of him who sent me. And so we understand that this joy and satisfaction is deeper, it's larger than our appetites or physical appetites. In one respect, the work of Christ has been finished. It's been completed on the cross. And he understood uh, that where he was going, understand what would take place. But in one respect, at the same time, we are a part of helping to complete the work that he is doing. That this satisfaction comes from God alone and what only he can provide. It's deeper, it's richer than any food, any physical food that we can have. When I was a, a little boy, my, my dad used to work, he ran a, a couple businesses, several businesses at the same time. One of the things that he did, he, he sold RVs and uh, he was constantly in the shop fixing RVs or putting on hitches and, and uh, he did many other things. But uh, he was always working with tools and always underneath a, on a, one of those little creeper, those things, laying on it and going underneath the truck and, and putting on hitches or underneath the trailer. And when I was a little boy, I used to love to hang out with my dad. I loved just to, to be with him when he would work and, and, and he would always need tools and I would fill my pockets literally with, with tools, as many tools as I could fit in my little pockets as a six and seven year old boy. And I used to lay down there underneath the, underneath the truck with him and, and, and I would just wait for the opportunity that he would need a tool because maybe, just maybe, I would have on me a tool that he would need. And I loved it when he would call out for something and I would pull a tool out and say, is this what you need? And he'd say, no, 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 I don't need that, I need this. And I learned a lot about tools, but I learned a lot about working with my dad. I enjoyed working in his work. I enjoyed the process and I was satisfied being with him and doing what he did. We were just putting on hitches and wiring up trailers and such, but I enjoyed it greatly. And I got to be a part of it. And I think in one respect, the joy, the kind of satisfaction that we're describing that Jesus says and tells us that there's this kind of joy and satisfaction that's deeper and richer than anything that we can taste. It's participating in the work of God. It's having a tool at the right time saying, can I be a part of what you're doing? And Jesus reminds us of this joy and satisfaction that goes beyond mere appetites that we have. It goes beyond this. He goes on to teach them about this, but as well that there's a harvest that's ready in places and in ways beyond what our physical eyes can see. He wants them to see and understand that there's a harvest. There's something taking place beyond what their physical eyes can see. In verse 35, he says, um, do you not say there are four, four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white. They're ripe for harvest. There is something taking place that is beyond what physical eyes can see. We understand this mission that Jesus is on is his first and foremost. That he is the sower. He is the reaper. He is the seed that will fall into the ground and will die. 
But in the same respect, we have an opportunity to be involved in this harvest, be involved in sowing, in reaping, in planting that seed. We have an opportunity to, to be there. He's the one that's active in doing the work. He's the one sowing. He's the one cultivating. He's the one reaping, but he involves us in that process. Different theological categories, we understand him to be the one who's electing and calling and regenerating. He's the one doing all this kind of work, all beyond what our physical eyes can see. Because there's a harvest, because there's some, something taking place, we shouldn't be surprised when we see things happen that we didn't expect. Indeed, the, the, the disciples were surprised. They were not at all prepared. Here they were in Samaria of all places, and they're hungry. All they can think about is food, and they come back, and what's Jesus doing? He's talking to this woman. And next thing you know, there's all these people coming for him. What's going on here? And you realize they're surprised by what Jesus is doing. But they shouldn't be, because this is what Jesus says. There's a harvest. There's something happening that's beyond what their physical eyes can see. There are fields that are ripe for harvest. God is at work. So just as we find a kind of joy in being a part of the Father's work, a kind of satisfaction that comes from sharing in that work with him, so we need faith to be able to see what he's doing. We need faith to be able to see the work, the harvest that's present. But thirdly, there's a fruit of this harvest. And the fruit is not temporal. The fruit of the harvest is eternal. It's not just something that's going to last for a few years or a few decades. It's fruit that will last for eternity in verse 36. He says, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. The fruit that we're describing, the fruit that he's calling them to be a part of harvesting is fruit unto eternal life. I think the beauty of this passage, again, Jesus is painting these roles of, of uh, sowing and reaping. And it reminds us of the body. It reminds us of the different roles that each of us have in this process of sowing and reaping. That it's a much bigger than just any one of us, but it's a whole. And it's a part of what he's doing. And this harvest, specifically that he's speaking of in this case of Samaritans, he identifies that the sowing and reaping go hand in hand. That they coincide that in most cases, he says, don't you have an intervening period between sowing and reaping? That's the general, normal status of life, the natural way of things. You have this, but he says, not in this case. In this case, you have them coming simultaneously. You have sowing and reaping coming simultaneously. You see that the reaper is coming right on the heels of the sower as these people are coming. Here is the harvest, he says. And this is a great picture of us of the messianic period of who he is and what he does. We're told in the prophets that when the Messiah comes, this is exactly what will take place. That the reaper will come right on the heels of the sower because of the bounty of the spiritual harvest that's there. And Jesus says, look, see, this is the period, this is the age in which we live where God is at work, where we are at work. So open your eyes and see. The fruit of this harvest is bountiful, but it's also eternal says that this fruit is eternal. The fruit of our labor is eternal life for those who believe. The fruit of our labor with God in the lives of people lasts for eternity. And that's so important for us. I think sometimes we do not understand the importance or the significance of the role that we play. 
We do not want to underestimate the active role that God plays in this whole harvest. That he is the one that does it. But we have a necessary and vital role in being a part of him. And so we must see the eternal significance of this fruit. Lest we think it not important enough to warrant our attention. We need to see the eternal nature of the fruit that's there. Lest we think that our participation means nothing. That it's unnecessary or somehow that it's redundant. God is the one that has established, has ordained that we get to be a part of this. Indeed, he's ordained it that we are to be the agents in the harvest. That we get to be a part of it. Why else would he be teaching his disciples? He says, open your eyes. See what's going on here. We will be bringing in the fruit that has been labored for. We get to be a part of that. And so it's necessary and important for us. Unless we forget the eternal value and joy of the fruit that has been yielded by the labors of other people in our own lives, we need to see the eternal value of this. We cannot forget that others have labored for the fruit that has been born in our lives. I want you to take just a moment and I want you to think about the people that God has used in your life, that has labored in your life labored from childhood until this point in time now, that God has used to labor. A parent, a youth pastor, a friend, a work associate, campus minister, whoever it might be, think about how God has used those people in our lives to bring us to faith, to help us to grow in our faith, to help our fruit to stay and to last. He uses people. And so there's a necessary part of this. The fruit that he is bearing here is a fruit that is eternal. And there's a direct correlation between the joy and value that we understand our salvation, in our salvation, and our eagerness to live it out and to speak of it. There's a direct correlation between how we see our own salvation and how we live it out. It's there. And so we see that there's a great joy and satisfaction that's in participating with God in his harvest. That we need eyes of faith to understand that there's something happening beyond what our physical eyes can see. And we need to understand the eternal value of the fruit that's being harvested and the participation that we get to have. You see, this woman, she just responded. She went back. She didn't have any training. She hadn't been through any NAVs or crusade training. No evangelism explosion training. She didn't have any training at all. But what did she do? She went back and told about Jesus. But this man who knew her. And they followed and they responded. And so we are to do the same. Jesus' mission is bound up and tied to the necessity of going through Samaria. Two parts to that mission. Together, reaching the Samaritans and reaching his own disciples. Together they go. They're intertwined. As we understand the nature of the harvest. As we understand what he is doing. And we understand the lostness of people outside who don't know Christ. We're motivated. We're able to work alongside with him in that. To experience the joy of participating in that. To have eyes to faith to see of what he is doing at the same time. To understand the eternal value of that fruit. That's the mission of Jesus. Both. The final question I want to ask. and As we bring this to a close. What's our response to this? What, what, do we, what do we do with this? We see this dual mission of Jesus. We know what he's doing in our lives. Well, I think right in the middle of the text is, is, is really the, the clear application for us in verse 35. 
It's really the one imperative in the whole text. It's the one charge. It's the one challenge to his disciples, and it's a challenge to us. He says, do you not say there are four months, then comes the harvest? And he says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see. Lift up your eyes and see. That's the challenge. That's the charge for us. A lot of commentators think that it, this, this charge to them is at the very time at which they're kind of messing with the food and, and, and focused on the food. And it's at the very same time that the, the Samaritans from Sychar, that the woman has gathered, are coming over the hill and they're coming into view. And Jesus says, lift up your eyes and see the harvest. That they're looking at the food and he says, forget about the food. Look at what God is doing. And then it's at this point in time that they lift their eyes. The lift your eyes really means to shift or change our, our, um, the object of our attention. It means to change, to shift the object. It's not necessarily just up. It means to shift the object of our attention. For example, when I'm at home, if I'm reading the paper, reading a book, and one of my kids will come to me and they'll have a question as a good dad, I try to do this. You, know, you put it down, you put the paper down, you put the, the book down, and you turn your attention to your kids. Or maybe even more, more importantly, if your wife comes and you're watching a football game or a basketball game, and she has a really important question for you, you change your attention. I usually have to turn the TV off, right? We turn the TV off, we change our attention so I can hear and see what it is that she wants. And this is what Jesus is saying to do. He says, lift your eyes, shift your attention from things that are here, nothing wrong with food, but shift your attention from things that are there to seeing what God is doing and see and look what God is doing. And the message for us is clear. We need to shift our attention, to shift them from things that are important and valuable but to the things that are more important, from things that are temporal to things that are eternal. And that's the challenge for us. There's many things that preoccupy us, many good things. And certainly the disciples were preoccupied with getting food and feeding Jesus and all of that. But Jesus says it's not that important. And indeed, our lives are spent laboring for food. Our lives are, are spent putting clothes on our back and putting roofs over our head. Certainly many more things. And by God's grace, he provides all of those things. But even more importantly than any of those things, Jesus is telling us, he tells the disciples, don't allow those things that are good to get in the way of that which is most important. As D.W. Tozer said, the good is always the enemy of the best. And so let's not allow the good things, the temporal things that are godly and necessary and a part of our lives to get in the way of the things that are most important, the things that are eternal. Because that's how we understand the harvest. That's, the harvest is bound up in seeing that which is eternal. So we lift our eyes and we consider what God is doing and certainly this is a work that God has to do in us. It's something that he must do. We are so preoccupied, so easily distracted by all these things. I'll hardly stop mowing my lawn to go talk to my neighbor. Got to get my lawn done. Got to get it done. Got to have a green grass. God says, no, there are much more important things. We need him to be at work in our hearts, revealing us, open our, opening our eyes so that we can see what he's doing. We ask the question of his mission. Why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? The mission was twofold, to, to give water, to live living water to those who were thirsty. At the same time, to remind, to remind those who had tasted of the living water that it's not to be kept for themselves. That there is something that God is doing and that their role and their part to play 
is to open their eyes and see what he's doing, to take joy in the satisfaction of working and participating with their father and understanding the eternal value of the fruit that God is bearing through their work. And the beauty of this is he weaves both of those things together for his glory. We get to see both the harvest and we see a harvest in our own lives and a transformation. As we go, we live and we work and we do our lives. We don't stop doing our lives, but we go prepared to lift our eyes from our work. We prepare to lift our eyes to see what he's doing. We go with tools in our pockets, ready to be used by the Father at any given moment. And as we do, we can expect something to happen, both externally in the lives of those outside and internally in our own lives, as God transforms us and enables us to see the value of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the way that you've satisfied our thirst, for the way that you have come and you dwell in us and give us satisfaction on an ongoing basis. But Father, we are hungry for more. We are hungry to know this satisfaction and joy that comes from, from, from being a part of your work. Father, don't allow us to miss that to be so preoccupied with the things that are in front of us that are good, to miss the work that you're doing. Father, would you give us eyes of faith to see the things that are beyond what our physical eyes can see so that we are not surprised, but that we will be prepared and ready. And Father, would you enable us to see the eternal value of the harvest, the eternal value that's been born in our lives, the, the way and the roles that you will enable us to play in sowing and reaping, cultivating people around us, Father, give us that great joy of our salvation so that we would be eager to share and to talk and to live in a way that would honor you and would reflect you. Help us to be prepared in a moment's notice. Father, lift our eyes. Help us to change the object of our attention from these things, to look down, from looking down to looking up, to see and respond to what you're doing. We're grateful for what you are doing and our, our role in that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I would ask you to stand for the benediction, and then the response to the benediction is uh, that your kingdom come. And it's a reminder to us again of the kingdom that God is building that we get to be a part of. The benediction is a great reminder of the power that he provides for us in this process to, to not be preoccupied, but to really see what he's doing. Receive this as God's benediction. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness according to our knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness. Let's sing to our God. Your will be done.
It's your strength, oh God, and courage to speak. Perform your wondrous deeds through those who are weak. Lord, use us as you want, whatever the test. By grace, we'll preach your gospel tale.